Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Diffusion Science Radio Show in this, our special 40th anniversary of the Lunar Landing Edition. This week we're going to bring you all the latest moon news and some news that's 40 years old, 10 unknown Apollo 11 facts, and just for balance, we're going to talk about whales as well. But first up, here's Ian Buzz Aldrin Wolf with all the Lunar Landing News. <laughs> And NASA have a robot space probe that's on a collision course with the moon. But this is going as planned. NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, LRO, and Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite, LCROSS, were successfully projected moonwards in June atop an Atlas V rocket. The mission will spend at least a year in low polar orbit, about 50 kilometres above the lunar surface, They'll be looking to find safe landing sites, locate potential resources, characterise the radiation environment, and test new technology. They'll also be taking pictures of the original Apollo 11 landing site. The payload includes the Cosmic Ray Telescope for the Effects of Radiation, Crater, designed to characterise lunar radiation, allowing scientists to work out the impacts on astronauts, the Lunar Orbiter Laser Altimeter, LOLA, which will measure landing sites, slopes, and lunar surface roughness and generate three-dimensional maps of the Moon, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter Camera, LROC, intended to retrieve high-resolution black-and-white images of the lunar surface to capture images of the poles with resolutions down to a metre. LCROSS is still attached to Atlas V's Centaur rocket upper stage, and it will guide in an elongated Earth orbit towards eventual impact with the Moon's surface on the 9th of October. So it's a suicide mission for heavy impact. NASA predicts a substantial debris plume from the crash, which should be visible from Earth and telescopes, 10 to 12 inches and larger. Four minutes after the Centaur's demise, LCROSS will descend through the plume, sniffing for possible water and other compounds of interest. So they're asking backyard astronomers to help track LCROSS as it crashes into the moon and to look at the plume. The NASA website has information you can download to put into your telescope to point at the right place on the moon. And they're hoping that amateur participation in the LCROSS mission, posting and sharing images that will be a scientific value before launch, during flight and during impact. So we're finally going to have proof that we landed on the moon 40 years ago. But if you didn't believe NASA 40 years ago, why should you believe them now? The conspiracy theorists commented on the website that they'll only believe it when the Europeans take pictures of the Apollo 11 landing site. Oh, so it's a nationalistic thing. We don't trust the Americans. Apparently. Interesting. I hadn't heard that one before.
As part of our 40th anniversary of the Lunar Landing edition of Diffusion Science Radio, Ian Wolfe has put together 10 little-known things about the Apollo 11 mission to the moon 40 years ago. Here's 10 little-known facts about Apollo 11 that were actually unearthed by Craig Nelson. 1. The Apollo's Saturn rockets were packed with enough fuel to throw 50 kilos of shrapnel 5 kilometres, and NASA couldn't rule out the possibility that they might explode on takeoff. They seated their VIP spectators just six kilometres from the launch pad. The Apollo computers had less processing power than a calculator. Drinking water was a fuel cell byproduct. They had hydrogen fuel cells on board. But Apollo 11's hydrogen gas filters didn't work, so every drink was bubbly. Urinating and defecating in zero gravity hadn't been figured out, and the latter was so problematic that at least one astronaut spent his entire mission on an anti-diarrhoea drug to avoid it. When Apollo 11's lunar lander, the Eagle, separated from the orbiter, the cabin wasn't fully depressurised, resulting in a burst of gas equivalent to popping a champagne cork. It threw the module's landing four miles off target. Pilot Neil Armstrong nearly ran out of fuel landing the Eagle, not surprising if it was four miles off target, and many at Mission Control worried he might crash. Apollo engineer Milton Silveria was relieved because his tests had shown that there was a small chance the exhaust could shoot back into the rocket as it landed and ignite the remaining propellant. The one small step for man wasn't actually that small. Armstrong set the ship down so gently that its shock absorbers didn't compress. He had to hop down three and a half feet from the Eagle's lander to the surface. When Buzz Aldrin joined Armstrong on the surface, he had to make sure not to lock the Eagle's door because there's no outer handle. And the toughest moonwalk task? Planting the flag. NASA's study suggested that the lunar soil was soft, but Armstrong and Aldrin found the surface to be a thin wisp of dust over hard rock. They managed to drive the flagpole a few inches into the ground and film it for broadcast, and then took care not to accidentally knock it over. The flag was made by the Sears Company, but NASA refused to acknowledge this because they didn't want another tang. The inner bladder of the spacesuits, the airtight liner that keeps the astronaut's body under Earth-like pressure, and the ship's computer ROM chips were handmade by teams of little old ladies. It's amazing to think what we did all the way back then with the processing power of a, a modern calculator. It's phenomenal. It, it surprises me that we haven't gone back. It shows you how political it was at the time. It absolutely does. And I wonder if going back is political as well. I mean, this time we'll be going back with real computers, hopefully not running Windows XP. <laughs> you really don't want a blue screen of death when you're in space. No, you don't. I heard that one of the reasons why we're going back to the moon now is because of the new James Webb telescope, which is being launched in 2014, which is a Hubble telescope replacement. And it's going to be powerful enough to see the flag that the Apollo 11 astronauts planted on the moon. So if that was all faked, the new telescope will be able to tell. So we need to send people back there. We need to get humans back to the moon to plant a flag there before the telescope gets up there. Otherwise, people will uncover the conspiracy. Yes, I've actually heard a conspiracy theorist tell me that the reason they don't believe that NASA landed men on the moon in 1969 is because the technology was too primitive back then. It was, I mean, it was impossible for them to go back before they had digital computers. Right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and you were saying about the Chinese, their mission to the yes. moon. Yes. Well, the thing is, it's not just the Americans who are going back to the moon. It's also the Chinese and the Indians and the Japanese and the Russians and the Europeans. Like, oh, there's a big race to be second to the moon. 
And the Chinese say they're going for the nuclear fuel, the helium-3. Everyone else says they're going for the science. For the science, yes. Well, at least the Chinese are honest, I guess. <laughs> small step for a man One giant leap for mankind There's an American flag on the moon tonight Flying red and blue and white There's an American flag waving on the moon Waving on the moon tonight There's an American flag, can't you see? Sitting on the sea of tranquility There's an American flag waving on the moon Waving on the moon tonight I'm not a bit neurotic, not a bit psychotic Oh no, no, I'm only patriotic Gloriowski, what a kick I'm a lunar, una, luna, una, lunatic It's an American moon, if you please Refer to it now as American cheese Stars and stripes light up the Milky Way Hey, Apollo 11 delivered our heavenly right to say The man in the moon is a citizen of the USA Stand up and On third. as you could probably tell, that song was from 1969 in celebration of the moon landing. It was the Bobby Dimple Lunar Ladies Chorus with the Cutie Kids Hutch Davies Diggers Band singing American Moon from the Heart's Delight Follies 69. Please repeat that to me some stage. (laughs) And now for a complete change of pace, let's talk about whales. 
I recently went to the South Pacific nation of Tonga, and their biggest tourist industry is whale watching. The whales migrate from the south to the Tongan Islands between August and November each year. I spoke to a friend of mine, Scott Portelli, who runs whale watching tours in Tonga during these months, about whale migration and about whale behaviour. I started off by asking him, why Tonga? Tonga is one of those destinations that um, always fascinated me and when I found out that you could swim with whales there um, it really sort of piqued my interest. Um, I've always had uh, an affinity with the ocean and the sea and it was one of those things that I thought wow this is be a pretty cool thing to do. Uh, so I, at, at the time when I first probably had a look into this sort of stuff uh, would have been about eight years ago now so I've been doing it for a while going back every season um, found that you could do it I found an operator that was doing it I contacted the operator and said yeah what do I need to do you know, to come to Tonga um, ended up being a, a situation where I mutually helped the operator out with website stuff and photography and made a few donations in, in return got a bit of a discount so that was my first sort of introduction into the world of swimming with whales. So it was more the adventure that, uh, or the adventure of the beauty of whales or? It, it was definitely the adventure, um, you know I do a lot of photography obviously a lot of you know different wildlife and you know being in the water with a 40 ton whale uh, up close and personal within literally inches at some times you know, looking eye to eye with a whale and you know, they're just as curious and they're charismatic and they're just a sort of creature that likes to interact. So there was, you know, there's that excitement and thrill there. So I just wanted to, you know, feel what it would be like. And like I said, because it lended, lent to photography, um, you know, it was an ideal situation. Well, we should say you won the first prize in the Scuba Diver Australasia underwater photography competition, which was excellent. Was this a photo from Tonga? Uh, it was, actually. Um, it was, a, ironically, not a photo of a whale, though. It was, a, it was a photo of a young girl in a cave swimming through the middle of a school of fish. And uh, the way this... There's a cave in uh, Tonga uh, called Swallows Cave, and at a certain time of day, the light sort of pierces through the water and creates these beams of light. And... We were just in there playing around and I was just taking a few shots here and there and there was a perfect situation, um, took the shot and it was one of the ones that obviously the judges liked. And so when do you go to Tonga? When's the whale season in Tonga? Because I've heard that there are whales off the coast of Australia at the moment but then I keep hearing they're moving north so they're in Queensland I think at the moment. Is, when, when do you go to Tonga? When are you going this year? The time to be in Tonga, the ideal time in Tonga is between August and mid-October. So what's happening is the whales are migrating north to their birthing grounds. Uh, they're going up there to give birth to the calves and they're also up there to mate. So they're in tropical waters, uh, they're up there, the calves uh, are born, they need to be in uh, warm water because they haven't got a lot of blubber when they first you know, come out of you know, the mother's womb. Uh, so the mother nurses the babies, gives them all this rich fat milk and fattens them up for about two and a half months before they make that trip back to Antarctica. And in Antarctica they go back for their, uh, they're in their feeding grounds. So the reason you see them coming up the coast of Australia at the moment is they're, they're currently making their northern migration journey 
the, the whales that you do see coming up the coast of Australia are humpback whales and they've made literally the 6,000 kilometre journey from Antarctica all the way up the coast. They pass via Sydney so we, you know, June, July is the peak season to see them. You'll see a lot of them around now but they're usually on a mission. They're, they're heading north and that's why a lot of the time you'll see that they tend to stop in Queensland or you see them around Fraser Island or northern Queensland up near the coral seas and things like that because they're, they're going up to their breeding grounds. And what sort of whales do you see? You mentioned humpbacks, any others? Um, I've been lucky enough to see a number of different uh, cetaceans in Tonga. Tonga's on the edge of an uh, area which has got the Tongan Trench which is about 11 kilometres down. Uh, so you get a lot of sperm whales. I have swum with sperm whales and they're an amazing creature as well. Uh, you'll get a lot of different dolphin species. I've been in the water with bottlenose, spinners, rough-toothed dolphins. Uh, we've encountered pilot whales on many occasions, as well as false killer whales, which look similar to a pilot whale, but they've got these long fins. There's a number of creatures there. I've had a number of encounters with different things, including a whale shark last year and a manta ray which we didn't expect we'd see in those waters, but you know, they're very rich in you know, large marine life. And the whales don't mind you being there? Are they mild? I would have thought if they're giving birth they might be a bit frisky or, or something. Uh, the, the, whale, the, whales, the way we approach the whales is it's, it's more of a soft approach. So you know, we'll approach the, the whales and see if they're relaxed or if their behaviour shows that they're not concerned about us being around. And if that's the case, we'll get in the water and sort of you know, slowly swim towards them. And you know, often they're, they're curious, especially the babies. The babies are very curious and want to check out what these little human things are in the water. Uh, the adults are quite curious as well, but you know they'll often just stay where they are and not really move around too much. Um, you usually can tell if a whale doesn't want you around, they they'll move, and you know, they're moving ten times faster than you. So it's you know it's just an understanding that that's the behaviour. If they want to be around, they want to be around. If they don't, they don't. So it's not too dangerous then. How many people can be in the water near whales at a time? In Tonga, uh, which is one of only two places in the world where you can legally swim with humpback whales. The regulations are that you're allowed four people in the water with a guide at any one time. And it's got similar sort of regulations to Australia in how you approach the whales and how far a boat needs to be away from. However, you do have the ability to be in the water with the whales and get up close and personal. Uh, it's, it's not so much dangerous if you know what you're doing and you, you know how to read their behaviour and you don't do anything silly and you make sure you're abiding by their rules and not you know, trying to enforce your own rules on them. And do the whales travel together? How many can you see in one go? Humpbacks specifically, they can be seen in groups, large groups, anywhere between 10 and 50. Um, at the same time, they can travel like as a single whale the whole migration route. So there, there's no real patterns and there's no sort of, you know, no sense of um, family or, you know, specific pods. You know, these whales sort of basically mate and breed and go their own way. And, and it's the same with the mothers and calves. You know, after a couple of years, the, the calves have been weaned and the mothers will go their own way and the calves will fend for themselves. 
they'll be quite large by that point. Is, is the biggest threat to whales at the moment whaling, Japanese whaling or, or Norwegian or Icelandic whaling? What's the story? Whaling um, does contribute to the threat against humpback whales and specifically minke whales. The Japanese in the southern oceans can hunt minke whales and uh, large say whales and they have a quota that's around 935 or something like that and you know each year they're they're working against a loop in the IWC whaling commission's guide but it's hard to say what the biggest threat is like obviously you know whales being killed is a threat you know, pollution's another threat. Uh, there's a lot of pollution in the ocean. A lot of the whale meat that's being tested is got high levels of uh, toxic sort of chemicals and lead and things in the in the meat itself. So, you know, there is a, a threat from pollution. There's a threat from a number of areas where that are being sort of built uh, within the migration routes. A uh, good example is the desalination plant in Sydney. That's right in the path of the migration route. Um, it's going to put a lot more salt into the water. It's going to not only you know, threaten you know, the whales to change their direction and where they're going, it could threaten other species in the water that are around Australia. So there are a lot of things to consider. You know, there's oil refineries going up in places like Kimberley Coast, another area where it's a sanctuary for whales. And to put these sort of risks and you know, threats in place is just changing the whale's behaviour. I guess global warming might do that too, maybe warming the water or, or killing plankton, which the whales eat. Yeah, global warming has, uh, has impacted a lot on probably the smaller creatures, and they're the things that the whales feed on. You know, if there's less food around, there's obviously more competition for the whales to be able to survive. And, yeah, if they're being threatened, you know, by man as well, it's just, like, the chances are between starving, pollution, and, you know, human sort of killing of whales, they're, they're barely being able to recover their numbers from, you know, what they were pre-whaling days. Is it a psychological thing that we think whaling's bad or is it actually pushing them to the edge of, of extinction? Uh, there's a lot of species that are considered endangered or considered that the populations are, and numbers are quite low. There's no way that the whale populations have recovered. We're talking about whales that a species could have been up in the 250,000 in numbers and now it's down to like 10,000. And, you know, it, there's been dramatic drops. So it's quite hard to say because there was, there was no research and data really done pre-whaling days except for the data they've got is on the quota and how many you know whales were killed so it's difficult to say if they'll ever recover to that point now you know some species are recovering and you know are growing and increasing their population every year but it doesn't mean that necessarily people seeing whales as a resource, as a food source, is going to, you know, n not have an impact on the ecology and how, you know, whales, in, like, affect feeding and other species in the ocean.
And that was Scott Portelli. For more information on Scott's photography, see www.scottportelli.com. And if you'd like more information about his whale diving company, see www.swimmingwithgentlegiants.com. One small step for man Giant leap for mankind July 20th, 1969 And I think to myself What a wonderful moon Well that's about all we have time for for this week's special 40th anniversary of the Apollo 11 Lunar Landing Edition of the Diffusion Science Radio Show. If you've got any comments, queries or questions, you can visit our website at www.diffusionradio.com or you can email us at diffusion at 2scr.com. From our website, you can also subscribe to our podcast. Diffusion is broadcast from the luxurious studios at 2SCR Sydney, across Sydney on 2SCR and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Diffusion was produced this week by myself, Mark West, and also featuring on this show was Ian Wolfe. The song you are currently listening to is Wonderful Moon by Peter Bearder. Peter sent us this song, and if you'd like to send us any music, please do contact us through our website. Peter writes, I have written and recorded a song to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the moon landings. 20th of July, also my birthday. I love your show, and I thought you guys would have a sense of humour that would appreciate it. Well, Peter... We do. Happy birthday to you, and also happy anniversary, Apollo 11. See you next week on the Diffusion Science Radio Show. And I think to myself, what a wonderful moon. It's more lively down on earth, but I like it this way. Some get real cheesed off There's no atmosphere, they say But I see astronauts shaking hands Saying, where do I find a loo? They're really saying These suits make it real hard to poo, man I smell stale cheese a giant talking face He's worried about his acne But I think his complexion's okay Cause in spite of all his imperfections He's a wonderful moon Oh Yes, in spite of all his imperfections which there are many because he's a small, barren and uninhabitable satellite planet devoid of the basic ingredients of supporting life. He's a wonderful moon.